Hello, James. Welcome to Slobodni Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's not uh, a secret here in Croatia about your work. Everybody is following you, following you. But just a short introduction, just for people who who will meet you first time here in my podcast. Sure. Well, my name is James Corbett. I'm a Canadian who now lives in Japan, and I've been doing the Corbett Report podcast since 2007. I talk about history. I talk about science. I talk about philosophy. I talk about politics. I talk about basically anything I'm interested in at the moment. And I've been doing this for uh, 16 years now. And as you say, a lot of people know about the work if they're in the alternative media space, but a lot of people who aren't in the alternative media space don't know about this. And that's why I do it. I do this to try to get information out to the public that is not being uh, put out through the establishment media. Well, great. Today, topics is very important for us. Well, Croatia is now just enter Eurozone. It was two months ago. And uh, we are now experiencing something completely new, new currency, but also very soon, at the end of this year, we will expect something what is completely new for the whole world. And that's why this is the main topic today. And we will talk about central bank dig digital currency. Euro, digital euro will be in also in Europe at the end of this year. Can you tell us something? What is exactly central bank digital currency? Central bank digital currency, CBDC, is exactly as it is advertised. It is a digital currency that is issued by a central bank. And why this is important is because right now, the only form of uh, expression of liability of the central bank that people have access to are the paper bills that they carry around in their pockets. And I guess for Croatians now, the euros that you carry around, which are expressions of liability of the European Central Bank, which means that ultimately the European Central Bank is liable for the uh, the statement that is on that bill. So five euros or 10 euros or whatever it is. Um, that means that uh, the the all the things that we think of as money and the things that we generally use, which increasingly these days are cards or more more to the point apps or things like this those are uh, parts of the commercial banking system uh, through which the commercial banks are able to issue um, credits essentially to your account um, that are not direct expressions of central bank liability now a CBDC would be that digital type of money that would be directly connected to the central bank and there are different ways of doing that but one way to imagine this, would be that you would be able to download a wallet to your smartphone that would connect you directly to the central bank. Usually, right now, in the normal system, the normal banking system as we know it, you have an account at your commercial bank, and you bank with them. And the commercial bank has an account at the central bank, and they bank with the central bank. Well, in the CBDC system, you might have a, a wallet that would directly connect you to the central bank itself. And this is important because as Augustin Karstens, who is the executive director of the Bank for International Settlements, which is called the Central Bank of Central Banks, and it's located in Basel, Switzerland, uh, as he said uh, just a couple of years ago, right now, the central bank has absolutely no way of knowing what you're going to do with its expressions of liability. If you have a hundred dollar bill or a hundred peso bill or a hundred euro bill, you can do anything 
with that. And the central bank has no way to know it's out there somewhere and it's going somewhere between people and the central bank doesn't know. But with a CBDC system, it would be possible for the central bank to design it in such a way that they can monitor and track every single transaction in the economy, at least every single transaction that's taking place in that CBDC form. So when you go to the store to buy something, the central bank will be informed of that. They will know about that transaction real time. And that leads to the possibility that CBDCs could be programmable money. That is, they could program certain rules into the use of this expression of central bank liability. So for example, if you uh, if, if there's a carbon tax or a carbon limit, we can't put out so much carbon dioxide and uh, eating meat causes a lot of carbon production. So we're going to limit the amount of meat that you can eat. And so when you go to the store and you try to buy a steak, oh, sorry, you've got your uh, your meat limit for the month. They, It's possible to design a CBDC system so that they can literally program what you can and cannot buy, where you can buy it who you can buy it from, how much money you can spend at any given time. And that really is the nightmare of total financial control that we are staring at right now. In this case, what will happen with commercial banks? What will be their role in this? Yeah, very good question. Very important question, because as people may or may not know, with the banking system as it exists right now, the commercial banks are the middlemen between the central banks and the rest of the economy, essentially. And... Uh, that's that gives them an incredibly important role of uh, having the ability to literally create money out of expressions of debt. So when you go and get a mortgage or you get a car loan or something like that, the bank is actually literally creating that money into existence and putting it in your account backed by nothing more than your promise to pay them back with interest, of course. So that's the way the system works right now. In a CBDC system, if... If they set it up so that you have a bank directly with uh, a wallet directly with the central bank, that you are directly banking with the central bank, that cuts out that commercial bank middleman. And it is possible to imagine that a lot of the commercial banking business and the way that they operate would would be obsolete or would at the very least it would be significantly reduced. So there, I think, is a battle going on right now, not about whether we should have CBDCs or not. I think all of the arms of the establishment very much look forward to this system. But how do you set it up? And do you set it up so that, oh, okay, well, you won't have a wallet directly with the central bank. Maybe your wallet will be with a commercial bank so that they get cu- uh, kept in that loop and they, ca- they can maintain that buffer between you and the central bank. Again, there's many different ways that we can imagine this going. Um, but it is important to note that not every bank banker in this system necessarily sees it the same way. There are commercial banks and central banks and different types of financial institutions that benefit from structuring these things in different ways. In, in this moment, we have now account in a commercial bank, but when CDBC come, we will have account digital wallet, what will be directly with, uh, connected with the central bank. That means we will have two different accounts or it will be mixed up. 
It, it could be any uh, any of the uh, options above, and I think it will be play out probably differently in different countries and different regions. The Eurozone may choose to take a different form for its CBDC than in America or in Japan or in Germany or, or well, sorry, not Germany, but in Canada or um, many other countries. Um, and there are many different ways to set this up. So it is possible to imagine that you would have, for example, you could have a wallet with the central bank and you're getting your CBDCs through that, but you still have you still have cash and you still have the uh, bank credits in your commercial bank account. And all of these all of these things are swirling around in the economy. It doesn't mean that overnight they're going to flip a switch and the only thing that exists is CBDC. That would only happen in the event of some cataclysmic meltdown of the entire global economy and maybe they could get away with something like that but it's more likely that this will be a sort of gradual transition and cbdc's will just be added to what you already have and it may or may not be directly with the central bank or it may be with a commercial bank or even just some other type of financial institution that's been approved by the central bank uh well, for example, it could happen, for example. Now, uh, there is a big, uh, I think, bankruptcy in the United States, Silicon Bank. And it would happen, for example, that you have account in this, this bank, and now bank is went bankruptcy, and now they should uh, show you. If you want to save your deposit, just transfer everything in a digital currency, and you will accept it. It's logic. That is absolutely a possibility. And for people who know about this, um, well, especially if you've just joined the Eurozone, you should know about the bail-in scenario, which is what happened in Cyprus uh, about a decade ago um, when some of those uh, banks in Cyprus went under and they decided to uh, to perform a bail-in, not a bail-out of the banks, but a bail-in. And what that means is when you go and put money in your bank account, it is not that you're taking they're taking your money and putting it in a safe somewhere and they'll hold it until you ask for it again that isn't how it works when you put money into your bank account um at a commercial bank you are essentially lending that money to the bank which can then do whatever it wants to do with it under whatever rules of the banking regulations that exist in that country or region and Part of that means that essentially your deposit just becomes uh, a liability of that bank. Um, and in the event that the bank goes under and they owe money to their creditors, well, they can capitalize, they can make good on those, those debts that they have by taking some of their assets and liquidating them. And some of their assets include your holdings, which of course are not your money anymore. You've lent it to the bank. And that's exactly what happened in Cyprus. Now, generally, there are, again, depending on what country you live in and what regulations exist, there are generally there's some sort of government institution or something that will guarantee a certain amount. So, for example, in the United States, the FDIC insures $250,000 of deposits. And if you have anything over that, the bank can take it in the event that it goes bankrupt. Um, but that's a bit of a a mirage anyway, because if there was a widespread banking collapse and a number of banks went under, the FDIC and any other government agency anywhere in the world doesn't have the funds to be able to bail out or to to insure everyone, uh, everyone's deposits. There are way more deposits than uh, there are uh, insurance money to back it up. So it's absolutely possible. And we've seen those types of things happen, uh, obviously, in the past. In fact, 
um, Americans would be very familiar with that kind of history because it was a, essentially a bank run and a banking scare in 1907 that led to the panic that caused the American people to clamor for a solution, which became the Federal Reserve, which is the um, the, uh, the central bank in the United States, which started in 1913. So it, absolutely, these types of things happen. The bank shuts down because of some kind of crisis. And then the next week it opens and says, hey, look, you can get 50% of your deposits back. But oh, by the way, now it's in this new form of central bank digital currency. That is certainly an option at the table. And that's um, something that I think becomes more and more um, uh, of, of a concern considering how precarious the global economic situation is right now and how much that's been exacerbated by the shutdowns and the lockdowns and all the craziness of the past few years. Yeah. And it's possible also that you decide in one moment to transfer your deposit from the commercial bank to your uh, uh, digital wallet. That means that it's dangerous, for example, for bank run. Right, exactly. Um, so bank runs, of course, are for people who don't know, is when the bank seems to be going under, you're not sure whether they'll be able to give you your your, depo your deposits back. So you go and take all the money out. And if enough people end up doing that, then obviously the bank won't have enough because banks don't, as I say, they don't keep all deposits in some safe somewhere ready to be taken out. They're They're playing with that money and speculating and lending and doing all sorts of things with that, that money. Um, so uh, if enough people come and they don't have the money for it, then the bank goes under and that leads to that bank bailout or bank bail-in scenario that we were talking about before. Um, in a CBDC system, uh, I, again, I, it can be structured in different ways, but it is possible essentially to eliminate the concept of bank runs because there's nothing to take out of your account. Your account is a digital currency. It exists in digital form. There's there's nothing that you can do in order to take that money out and stuff it under your mattress or whatever, you know, emergency scenario that people might do in a bank run that doesn't exist, which also leads to all sorts of crazy, wild things that they can do with um, central bank digital currencies that they can't do with other forms of money. Um, for example, programming in negative interest rates or other things that shouldn't be possible or even if they were possible, which of course we have seen in recent years, various central banks trying to institute uh, negative interest rates. But as as I say, it is, it's always been possible to take your money out of the banking institutions uh, into in the form of cash and you know keep it in your closet um, while the negative interest rate craziness plays out. But in a central bank digital currency, if they if it goes to a negative interest rate, what can you do? There's nothing you can do other than spend your money. So. Uh, this is this is the kind of control that we're talking about on a level that's just never been possible before in the history of banking. And I think people perhaps don't appreciate just how important this really is. That leads to cashless society. That means we have we don't have any more alternatives in the cash. But they are telling right now, they are telling to us that uh, that will be just temporary replacement for cash, not not the only way. But it seems to that very soon there will be no logic to have a digital money, digital wallet and cash at the same time because it will be more convenient. Maybe it's the way how they will force people to do it. 
In fact, my my greatest worry isn't I mean, obviously, it is a worry that they could do, as I, as we've been talking about, some sort of spectacular banking crisis and then just basically saying, OK, now you, you need to accept the central bank digital currency. That could happen. But I actually am more fearful of the idea that people will willingly sort of stumble into this cashless nightmare because they don't understand the importance of what's happening right now. And it is so much easier to just wave your phone at something and beep and, oh, okay, I've paid for that thing, than carrying, getting all this cash out and counting out change. And of course, we've started to see this happen in country after country. More and more and more payments are being done electronically already, which is in fact part of the reason that the banksters cite for wanting to institute a central bank digital currency. There's already so much digital forms of payment going on that the commercial banks feel that they're potentially going to lose out as other forms of institutions that aren't banks like PayPal and whatever um, can operate in the banking system and again, take some of that commercial banking uh, uh, m- profit essentially out of their pockets. But also the, the central, the central banks are looking at this and saying, well, a lot of this is going on digitally anyway. And Hey, look over at China and places like that, where they're developing their digital currency. We need one so that we can, we won't be left behind in this global marketplace. And, uh, the worst part, as I say, I, I think the worst part is that most people will go along with it because it is convenient and it just seems easier than dealing with physical cash. And we are now far enough removed from the time of the Great Depression in the 1930s and global economic crisis, really understanding what that looks like and what form that takes. We're now far enough removed that those old grandparents that people used to have that would tell them about the bad old days and what used to happen when the global banking system collapsed, those people are dying off. That, that memory is increasingly being consigned to the history books. And people these days think, well, there's just nothing like that to worry about. Look, the banking system has been relatively stable for long enough that I think we've got things sorted out. And they don't understand where the, A, A, that this could turn extremely badly very quickly, and B, the importance of uh, financial sovereignty and what that means and the ability to transact with people without going through some sort of central bank middleman and why that might be a bad idea. Um, Again, I think people's ignorance on this issue is one of the most concerning things. I was listening to one of chief of Federal Reserves, one of the 12th Federal Reserves in the United States. He said exactly, it's not necessary to have CDBC. Whatever today's system can provide you, will CDBC will provide you. You don't need, except you want to have control like in China. That means it's, there is no necessity to have CDBC. Why they are pushing? Uh, it is it is about control, essentially, at the end of the day. This is what it's really about. As I say, they will say things about how, oh, well, more payments are taking place electronically now, and that's changing the nature of, of money itself. And they'll talk about the Chinese and Russians and other enemy governments that are doing this already. So we have to catch up or we may lose out. And the, for example, in the United States, Uh, Obviously, the U.S. dollar has been the international world reserve currency for a long time, but they risk losing that status. If there's a a brand new type of money, a central bank digital currency that really takes off, say, the Chinese 
um, E yuan takes off and becomes an international standard that the dollar might lose out. So they'll, they'll talk about that. But at the end of the day, this is about control. And I think that um, is, is most crystal clear when you actually watch Augustin Karsten's um, talking, as I talked about earlier, where he was talking about, well, in right now, we have no way of knowing what people are doing with these $100 bills that are floating around in the economy. But with a CBDC, we'll be able to see everything that's going on, every transaction that's happening. And what could possibly be the use of that? Why, why would they want that other than to start uh, implementing rules, regulations, limitations on the use of money. And I, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to understand why people in positions of power would want to be able to control the economic activity of their citizens. Um, but l- let's just say it is the most pervasive, powerful form of control that you could have over a population to be able to literally turn off people's ability to buy or sell in the marketplace. If you can't, if they turn off your wallet and you can't use the CBDCs and there is no cash and there is no other type of uh, trade going on, then you will just starve to death, essentially. And if people need to understand the danger that we are walking into right now, I would say, look to Canada. Look what happened in Canada last year with the Freedom Convoy, the truckers who were protesting against the vaccine mandates who were rolling across Canada into Ottawa to protest, uh, peacefully protest. Uh, no one no one hurt, no one injured, no one assaulted as a result of this. But the Canadian government declared the Emergencies Act, calling it a national security crisis to clear these truckers out of Ottawa. And what did they do? They uh, they started debanking some of the people involved with these protests, uh, basically trying to shut down their bank accounts, freeze all of their their accounts and all of their their funds to the point where there were people who literally couldn't make mortgage payments or or really transact at all because their their accounts had been frozen. And that required these the implementation of the Emergencies Act and the the creation of new powers for the Canadian government to be able to do this and coordination with the banks. It was a big deal and it took a lot of coordination to do. But in a CBDC economy, it would be a lot easier for the, the central bank acting on behalf of the government to shut people off at a moment's notice. It would not take any time at all. It would not take any coordination. It would simply be a matter of programming it in at the algorithmic level. This person's account has been limited. And that kind of control, the ability to stop people from using their own money, what what more control could a government ask for? There is no possibility of dissent. Whenever there is a protest that presents a real threat to the status quo, or actually could change things, they would be able to turn it off at the economic level. And I think that's really the danger we need to keep first and foremost. This is not about some uh, technological innovation or some way to make it easier for you to buy a, a stick of gum at the local store. This is about controlling your life right down to the economic level. Yeah, we see now lots of discussion about climate changes and about energy consumption. And as I see, fin- fintech is system. What will be for using this uh, CBDC? And exactly inside says that uh, this is more efficient concerning spending energy, energy consumption, and leaving a carbon footprint. 
we saw that in um, this discussion, there is a lots of uh, discussion about the carbon footprint. We already had cards, but they are measuring how much carbon you spend. That means in the future, if I understood you well, that you can be limited according to the carbon footprint you produce. Limited to spend your money. Absolutely right. And uh, I think people have to understand that carbon rationing is coming. We are being prepared for this in a number of ways. And it can start very subtly. Um, for example, restaurants uh, might start putting on their menu the carbon footprint of your meal. So it's it's there's a less carbon footprint if you eat this salad than if you eat this steak or something along those lines. And it will be the trendy thing to do to cut down on your carbon footprint. But at some point, it will start to be uh, enforced in various ways. And the easiest way to do that is by setting up some sort of carbon rationing system that's tied into the central bank digital currency that will actually prevent you from spending on things that have that exceed your carbon quota. And it's extremely interesting to me to note that this is not some new idea that was just dreamt up in the past decade or two. This is an idea that's been around for at least a century, demonstrably so. And I would point people to a, a, a movement, uh, an economic, social science movement, political movement that was taking place uh, in it started to develop in the 1920s. It really started to take hold in the United States and Canada in 19 in the 1930s during the Great Depression when people were casting about out of communism or I don't know something. Uh, the there was a group that came together called Technocracy Inc. that put out their Technocracy Study Course, and this course literally talked about the creation of technocracy, which is ruled by scientific elites, basically, uh, engineers and economists and social scientists and people who know about the running of society and how it should work. And this entire idea was structured around the idea that essentially what an economy is, is energy inputs and outputs. You take energy in and you produce these things that then get consumed uh, by people who are paying for them. Well, we don't need a monetary system to go through all that and try to set the price of different products and then people work to try to get money so that they, they can buy products. No, 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 no. What we have to do is get these scientists, these eggheads and brainiacs who can control everything and know everything about everything. They can perfectly plan the economy so they know exactly how much energy needs to be taken in and how much energy needs to be put out in order to produce the things that we all need or at least the things that the scientists say that we all need. And so you start to see where the problems with the system lie. Who gets to who gets to decide what we should be producing and how much and how much you you should be able to have? Well, anyway, the scientists will figure it all out. Don't worry. Uh -huh. And then they will take that energy budget for the entire nation. They called it a technate. But they would take the energy budget and then split it up amongst the population. And you would get energy credits uh, for your work. So if you're a doctor, if you're a, a car mechanic, if you're a, a store worker, you will get energy credits in your account for doing your work. And you can then buy things based on those energy credits. And everything would be priced in the amount of energy that it takes to create that product. So if, if you're buying a smartphone, how much energy 
inputs went into creating that product, well, that's how much you're going to have to spend in your energy rations. And and so the government would give this these energy credits out to you every month or every two weeks or whatever it is and put it in your account. And then you would go and you would spend. And once you're out of your energy credits, well, that's it. There's nothing you can do. You can't make any more energy credits. You can't do anything. You They, they come into your account and they're given to you by the technique. Now, that sounded like an absolutely bananas, insane, crazy idea back in the 1930s when it, this system would require the government to be able to monitor every transaction that's going on in the economy in real time and calculating how much is being spent and how, how, what products are being made and how much energy is being taken in and produced and all of this. It, it was absolutely an insane idea. But now, here we are approaching 100 years later and well actually we have the technology to do that we can monitor every transaction in real time now and it can all be in the form of some sort of digital currency that can be monitored and controlled and we can track uh, what products are being bought and sold and how much energy they required it's possible to have some sort of system like that but they're not going to call it energy credits it's not going to be called technocracy it's not going to look or feel like that 1930s form of technocracy no it's going to be sold to the public in the name of climate change because we have to save the earth from our horrible horrible human activity and so in order to do that we're going to get a carbon budget and you're allowed to have this much carbon ration and you will be paid in this form of digital currency uh perhaps uh, now they're talking about universal basic income and other ideas the government will just give you money every month and then you will be able to spend that much money uh, uh, on the things that they allow you to spend on within your carbon budget it looks and feels and smells and tastes exactly like technocracy and what they were talking about a hundred years ago but here it is now in this particular form and they are putting it under this guise of protecting the world from I guess the the angry weather gods and unfortunately again because people largely go along with the propaganda they don't understand what they are walking into or how dangerous this really is and tool will be programmable money as i understand programmable money that means they will program exactly how you can spend it yes yes well that is I, again, there's many different ways that this can be set up, but programmable money is definitely part of the agenda. And uh, I know politicians in the UK have openly talked about this, not in a not in a secretive way or a, oh, this is a nightmare way. No, talked about it as a great thing that they will be able to control what you are spending money on. And it can be done in absolutely any way imaginable. Um, for example... If the government feels that, oh, people people are hoarding too much money, they're not spending enough in the economy, they could institute uh, essentially a type of uh, system whereby your money will lose value the longer you hold it in your account. So they could say, okay, uh, within one year, uh, all of the funds in your account will go to zero. So you have to spend all of the funds that are currently in your account within one year in order for them to be valuable i mean again think of any sort of restriction and they can simply program that in at the algorithmic level 
Here's another example. During the uh, the lockdown craziness in Australia um, a couple of years ago, uh, one of the restrictions that they were uh, enforcing at some point was that you couldn't travel more than five kilometers away from your home um, without a valid pass from the government or whatever crazy rules that they were talking about. Um, that's That's a cumbersome system to enforce and having police officers stopping you at every corner and asking to see you know your papers and f- checking where you live and all of that but again programmable money could be programmed so that your cbdc wallet won't work if your smartphone detects you are more than five kilometers away from your home or whatever arbitrary rule that they cook into the system carbon rationing carbon credits can be programmed directly into the money itself so that the that your CBDC wallet knows your carbon footprint allowance and it knows what you've bought this month and it knows the carbon footprint of what you've bought this month and it can do the calculation. And when you get to the point where you've reached your limit, it can shut off your funds. So again, anything that you can think of, they could program into the money at any time. And it doesn't require essentially anything. All it requires is some coders on the back end to put that into the, into the code and it could be done immediately. Yeah, in Europe, we saw some examples of uh, so-called 15 or 20 minute cities where they are trying to to organize living uh, in an area of 50 minutes walking from your home. In this case, if you want to go somewhere else to buy something and it will be more than 50 minutes walk from your home, maybe you will not be allowed to buy anything. That's some kind of control also. Absolutely it is. And the worst part, again, for me, the worst part of all of this is how much people are willing to do this voluntarily, go along with it, because they think it is a good idea. And there is a sense to that. Um, Certainly, if you look at some of the the cities, certainly in my home of Canada, in the United States, some of these cities are so ridiculously spread out, such mishmashes of sprawl that you have to drive an hour to get to the place that you're going. It is crazy that that system exists and there's probably a better way to imagine living, but there is a huge difference between people deciding, you know, I'd prefer to live in a small town in a community where I know people and I can reach everything easily and I don't need to drive for an hour each way just to get to work and all of this. There are people deciding that and structuring their lives that way. Lives that way. And then there are things like the 15-minute city idea that start out as just council, city council rules or some sort of test program. But we all know where this is going. At eventually, of course, this is going to be mandatory. And there are going to be zones of travel. You're allowed to travel in this zone at this time of day, but you're not allowed to travel to that zone unless you have this special pass from the government, etc., etc. And all of this will not work, really. It would be completely unimaginable and unenforceable without digital identification, digital money, digital Uh, 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 passports of various sorts that will be tracking you via your phone and will be able to understand where you live, where you're going, uh, whether you're allowed to travel, where you're traveling. Uh, Of course, this system wouldn't work if it was just police officers that had to stop you at every corner and check where you were going. It only works if there's total digital surveillance of everything. And digital money is absolutely a part of that equation. Yes. Well, in 2021, it was craziness concerning pandemic. 
and Croatia has already digital ID from uh, June 2021. From that moment, we had also COVID passports. Five months later, we couldn't go to the work without COVID passport. And also Croatia is one of the three countries together with the Netherlands and Canada who has uh, already digital passports. It's just testing period. Why I'm saying this? Because our prime minister said that Croatia will become the first digitalized country in European Union. And now we have to talk this for creation of viewers. If he promised this, and we know that he really follows this agenda from European Commission, and we receive 9.5 billion euros for doing this, for digitalizing Croatia, that means that Croatia can become totally digitalized country and use this, all these tools what we just mentioned. What people in Croatia should know about this more in this moment? I think it's important for people to understand that digital ID is absolutely central to this entire agenda. Everything that we're talking about, including digital currency, which will be tied into your digital identity, um, is, is absolutely essential in order for this to function. So as I say, if a government wants to control where you can travel, when, how, what you can spend your money on, all of these things, there needs to be a way for the government to identify you in particular and to be able to reach in electronically and prohibit this or that behavior. And the way to do that is the digital ID. And I think you're exactly right to say that the COVID passports are essentially the Trojan horse for the digital ID. What we saw over the past few years is, well, it's a number of things, but it's the rollout of this digital identification. And uh, it was very obvious, for example, when we saw in China where People were being locked in their apartment buildings or within their neighborhood, and they would have to show their QR pass and their green pass in order to be able to be let out of their neighborhood. And people around the world looked at that and said, oh, those those evil com Chinese communists, of course they'd do that. But then it started happening everywhere around the world and in Croatia, too, and in other places. And what we saw was essentially the propaganda campaign, the rollout for the pass the uh, the digital ID via the, the sort of the passports to move uh, through government blockades. This, uh, it, it, I, I can't stress enough how everything is going to be tied to your digital ID, which will include, of course, vaccine passports, whatever sort of booster mandates, whatever the government decides will be necessary for your health in the future. It will include your central bank digital currency wallet, and it will include records of transactions you've had, places you've been, people that you've met, it will all be in this government-issued digital ID. And the worst part is that for generations, people have understood that the government having these types of databases, collecting information, even issuing uh, an ID number 
for you as a citizen. People have always known that that is tyranny. That is what tyranny is, and that's what it looks like, and that's how it functions. There is no reason for the government to know everything about your life and to track you and to give you a number through which you interact with them so that they can track everything that you're doing. There's no reason for that. And people in the past have protested against that. Um, uh, It always strikes me. I remember I was uh, a young man just moved to Japan and I was watching the Gandhi biopic from 1981 or whatever it was, the Richard Attenborough um, biopic of Gandhi And it was about the time when Gandhi was in South Africa and the South Africa, the British uh, uh, colonial government there instituted the rule that all Indians were going to have to carry around a type of uh, identity paper with them at at all times. And Gandhi was part of that movement resisting this. Absolutely no. And they started burning their identity papers and, and got beaten and arrested for it and all of that. Because people knew that, no, no, the government pr- providing ID like this is the, the, is the way that they enslave and, and tyrannize you. Uh, people back in the United States in the 1940s, 30s, 40s, 50s, back when the social security system was first being set up and there were social security numbers that were being given to people on cards, people were freaked out about that. No, why is the government trying to assign us this, this type of identification and these numbers? And it actually says on those original social security um, papers that they gave to people, it actually says not to be used for identification. Because again, people were very, very concerned about IDs and identification and governments having access to the databases of information about you. Um, Back when the internet was first forming, there were uh, 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 protests that were happening on campuses in the United States calling this the octoputer, the octocomputer, that they're building these databases that are meant to track you, and it's it's all about surveillance, and the government is going to know everything about you. They're going to weaponize this. The military is involved with creating this new network. This is a bad thing. People protested about it at the time. But now here we are in 2023, and the digital ID is literally being introduced, and people are... A lot of people are taking it without even thinking about it and without understanding this this is what tyranny looks like. This is the type of thing that George Orwell was writing about in 1984. This is Big Brother, and this is how it happens. So um, I, I just want people to understand that the digital ID is is the big red line here. And once we cross that, the government will be able to do with you what it wants to do with you. Well. We now have to come back to the last three years because from the start we were talking about this dangerous. Now, after three years, we know that pandemic should never happen, that infection fertility rate is lower than seasonal flu. We also knew some other things. But it seems to that there was a reason why should pandemic look like this way. These lockdowns, also digital ID, exactly COVID passport and the mandatory vaccination. And now we have to go back because it seems to some people knew before it even happened, that will happen. Can us tell us something about this? What happened in 2019 concerning this and people who were involved in the federal reserves and their actions before the pandemic? 
Well, actually, we have to start uh, even further back because this is not an agenda that started in 2019. This is an agenda that started a long time ago. But at the very least, we could go back to 2001. And as people might remember, 2001 is when September 11th, the September 11th attacks happened in the United States, which, of course, started the whole war on terror and all of the craziness of wars in the Middle East and uh, destabilization of that region and the terror attacks and the threat of terrorism and Al-Qaeda becoming the number one problem in the universe that everyone had to devote all their time and attention to. Um, again, I think people know that part of the story. But the other thing that happened around that same time in the United States was another attack that was taking place that most people probably forget about. It was the anthrax attacks. And for people who don't remember, there was anthrax spores that were being put in letters and mailed to various people around the United States. There were several such letters that were received. A few people died. Um, several people were targeted, including a couple of senators who happened to be senators that were holding up the passage of the U.S. Patriot Act, which was the Homeland Security Authorization Bill that basically obliterated what was left of the U.S. Constitution in the name of fighting terrorism. Um, and lo and behold, the uh, when the anthrax attacks occurred and Congress was shut down and craziness was happening, and then the Patriot Act got tabled and passed immediately before anyone even had a chance to read what was in it. Absolute insanity. But yes, the anthrax attacks were blamed, of course, initially on Iraq. Oh, it's got this bentonite that's uh, a key signature of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction and his anthrax program and blah, blah, blah. Actually, that turned out to be complete hokum. And even the FBI and everyone else involved with the, uh, the investigation had to say, oh, wait, actually, it had nothing to do with Iraq. No, that was a red herring. Actually, it came from the U.S.'s own biological weapons program at Fort Detrick. But anyway, uh, you know, moving right along. And people don't remember the rest of that story and how that played out and Bruce Ivins and all of that. But the point was that the Homeland Security State, the terror threat that we were all facing after September 11th, was intimately related to the bioterror threat, that they were they were starting the creation of this biosecurity complex at the same time. So on the back of those anthrax attacks, they started to introduce all of this infrastructure, institutional infrastructure, legislative infrastructure for creating a biosecurity state that would be similar to the homeland security state and, oh, protect us from the terrorists, this was going to be, oh, protect us from the bioterrorists. And so there was a lot, there was creation of entire agencies within the U.S. government. There was the creation of all these model state emergency legislation that would give governors, for example, in the United States, um, it would give them the power to quarantine people and mass vaccinate people. And it, it was billions and billions and billions of dollars that went into various development of vaccines and development of um, other types of prophylaxis and other um, treatments that could be envisioned. So it was uh, basically the the kickstarting of the machinery for what became what we saw in 2020. And actually, the uh, entire idea of social distancing and locking down populations in the event of some sort of pandemic, some sort of spread of a pathogen, what do we do? Let's shut down all productive human activity, get people to stay away from each other, just clam themselves up in their own homes and just basically wait it out. That was never, never an idea that was on the table. It was never seriously proposed by any epidemiologists or anybody, but actually it was a high school student's 
paper um, that ended up, I think, taking third place in a in a science fair in the United States uh, back. Uh, I, I want to say around 2006. Anyway, some time ago, that paper uh, suggested that maybe what we should do is lock down and and have social distancing in the event of the next big pathogen spread. And it just so happened that that high school student's father was working in uh, the Bush administration at that time in the Homeland Security Complex and was able to forward those plans. And those plans eventually got dusted off in the event of COVID. And hey, why don't we start doing this? So that's really, I mean, of course, it has. there's no scientific basis whatsoever. Six feet, two meters of social distance was totally made up. It had nothing to do with, they didn't even pretend that it had anything to do with science, that this had been scientifically determined. It was just something that they made up. We saw the results of that. Um, So what I'm trying to say is that for decades, we have seen the creation of a biosecurity complex to go along with the homeland security complex that was waiting there, waiting in the wings for some sort of event. And it doesn't matter if that event is real or fake or whether it's actually killing millions of people or whether it'll make a few people have the sniffles or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with that. What it was always about was uh, being able to essentially flip that switch and go from practice to real life with regards to all of these tools of the biosecurity complex and really ramping up the biosecurity state. And part of that, of course, was the introduction of the health passes and the digital IDs that we've been talking about. And an excellent example of that, which I talked about in a piece that I did called COVID-911 from bio, from Homeland Security to Biosecurity, I pointed out that one of the, one of the big winners of the whole COVID debacle was a, a company that was uh, trying to push something called the Clear Health Pass, which actually was something that they developed in the wake of 9-11 and the terror threat. They started doing this um, this digital pass thing for airports in the United States. But now, now that we were living in the post-COVID world, now we need to have this at stadiums and shopping malls and anywhere else you go where we're going to need some sort of system for screening you before you enter. Hey, we've already got this this technological infrastructure that we set up in the wake of the terror attacks. Well, now we can just roll it out for this new bio security threat. Um, there is there is definitely something that's happened there. It's happened at the economic level, as you were saying. But um, one thing that I will always point to was October of 2019 was not only when Event 201 was going down and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Johns Hopkins and all of these other institutions put together a FBI simulation also. of a globally spreading coronavirus event. Yeah. But also at the same time, the Milken Institute in the United States was hosting a a conference in which Anthony Fauci and others were speaking about the need for some sort of event to come along to hurry up the production of all these great new ideas that we have for mRNA vaccines and DNA vaccines, these new types of technologies that will really transform the way we think of vaccines and and public health. But it'll take at least a decade and billions and billions of dollars for pharma manufacturers to get these new vaccines through all the approval process and clinical trials. But if there was some sort of big emergency event 
then the government could step in and do it for them, essentially. And they were openly talking about that in October of 2019. So I think we know at, at the very least who are some of the big winners of the past few years. Okay, I understand if government steps in, but it seems to that it's not the only government who steps in. It seems to that some other companies, very powerful companies, now are very involved in all this planning. Can you tell us something about the biggest one who is involved by the name of BlackRock? And what is very important to tell us something about Aladdin, Aladdin Climate, for example, because ESG is something that I would like you to explain something about. What is ESG? What is Aladdin? What is Aladdin Climate? Well, that is a huge issue that we could spend another hour talking about. I only have five minutes until my next interview. Okay. So basically what I will say, first I will say, yes, I guess the idea of government stepping in to help their citizens sounds good on paper. But what that means in reality is government choosing certain corporations or corporations choosing the government, as the case may be, in order to forward those corporations agenda. It has nothing to do with protecting public health. Secondly, yes, you're raising the specter of BlackRock, which is one of the largest financial institutions in the world at this, t- this stage. It's um, an asset management firm that now has trillions and trillions of dollars under management. I forget what the latest figure is. I, I think it was $20 trillion dollars worth of assets under management um, that are being managed by, as you say, this Aladdin system which uh, stands for assets, uh, uh, let's see if I can find the exact, I forget what it stands for, Uh, assets, liability, uh, something, something. Debts, derivatives, yeah. Assets, liabilities, debts, derivatives, and uh, uh, network at the end. Yes, 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 yes. And so for people who don't know, this is a uh, essentially an algorithm that now is managing, as I say, $20 $20 trillion dollars, um, worth of assets for various institutional investors and, and, and stakeholders. And what this does is it, in real time, it monitors all of these uh, portfolios, calculates uh, risk of various events, and basically plans out, should we be buying? Should we be selling? What should we be? How should we be hedging these risks? Um, what should we be doing with this? And essentially, it is an algorithm that is increasingly replacing actual humans who are in charge of this system. And this, the the firm that uh, started this is called BlackRock. Um, it, as I say, it's, it's a huge, incredibly important financial player that Until recently, now it's changed, but until recently, almost no one had even heard of BlackRock. It's been around for a few decades now, um, and it has been intimately tied. It was it really started to come to the forefront in the 2008 bailouts in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, and it, it helped to it helped the government helped the government to determine how to um, uh, spend its uh, bailout money and uh, in what form and what have you. It, it helped with that. And so when the global COVID crisis hit, well, who are you going to turn to? Let's turn back to BlackRock. And uh, so Larry Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock, has become an incredibly important figure in this. And one of the things that BlackRock has done uh, has been to promote this ESG concept, which is environmental, social, and corporate governance as a set of principles, rules, ideas that if corporations follow then 
things like BlackRock will invest in them. And if BlackRock will invest in you, well, then you're, you, you have it made. And if BlackRock won't invest in you and they put you in the bad books, then you certainly won't be doing very much. And supposedly this is all in the name of saving Mother Earth and helping the environment or something like that. But again, it's just another extremely convenient tool for control um, because corporations can be upgraded or downgraded in their ESG ranking based on whatever sort of arbitrary criteria are floating around at the moment. So in the wake of the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, in 2022, uh, we, saw, we saw people immediately saying, well, any corporation that invests uh, or that still has any financial ties with Russia or is doing business in Russia, they should be downgraded. They, their ESG score should go down. Or, for example, you have corporations like Tesla, which until a few years ago, it was the absolute model and paragon of, oh, Elon Musk is saving the world because he's afraid of climate change and we're going to have an electric car revolution. And so it, it was the prime model, the, the shining beacon for all of the people who were concerned about the environment. But now that Elon Musk has sort of turned and people think, oh, now he's some kind of right winger, we don't like him anymore. Now Tesla is being downgraded for its ESG scores and other companies, other car companies, um, Fords and what have you, are actually uh, doing better than Tesla. And as Elon Musk points out, what's the deal here? I, I, I helped spearhead this whole electric electric car revolution that was supposed to be good for the environment. But it's because, again, it's a political tool that is being wielded by people with literally trillions of dollars of investment capital under their belt. At the end of this interview, what really is too short, but we have to, we have to take care of your time, precious time. Can you send a message to people in Croatia and people who understand our language here in neighborhood, what we can do to fight against this dangerous to losing completely freedom, to have absolute control of our lives? I would say that if you are aware of this agenda, if you understand the dangers that we are talking about, then you are already ahead in this game. You are ahead of almost everybody else in this population, because I think most people uh, may have some sense that, hey, this seems a bit strange, but they will go along with it. And that's I think that's to me, that's the real nightmare scenario, because a tyranny that is a boot in your face that is forcing you at point of a gun to do this, you have to use this digital ID, whatever the case may be, that at the very least is outright in-your-face tyranny that people will stand up to, they will resist. But if people go along with it, oh, it's convenient, oh, it's what's the big deal? It's just an app on my smartphone. I can buy things with this CBDC. It's okay. If people go along with it, that is so much worse. Because then when you stand up and you don't understand this is a system of control, we shouldn't be accepting this, you will look like the crazy one, right? So if you understand the danger that we are facing, great, awesome, you're already ahead. What we need to do is to share this understanding with others and to make them understand that no, this is not about convenience. This is not about being able to buy something at the local store and in in a quicker fashion. This is about controlling you, controlling your actions, controlling your life, controlling your ability to say no to a government in the future. And even if you imagine that this particular government that exists at this particular time is totally good and they have your best interests at heart and they're good people, 
Well, we can imagine at some point in the future, someone who doesn't have your best interest at heart, someone who isn't good, might get into a position of political power. And then what do you do? How do you resist in a world of digital IDs and central bank digital currency and total centralized control? It, that, that right there should be enough to send shivers down your spine. So as I say, if you're aware of this, awesome. That's the first step. And the next step is to make others aware of it and to prepare yourself for a future where this isn't happening. For the time being, cash still exists. The ability to barter and trade with other people still exists. The ability to leave your phone at home and to go out and to do things in the real world without your phone still exists. And if we do not flex that muscle and make use of it, it will go away. It will start to deteriorate. So we need to start thinking about and planning and doing those sorts of things that can expand the, the uh, domain of freedom in our everyday lives. And if people are interested in that, I have a weekly series called Solutions Watch, where every week I'm looking at things that people can do to improve their own lives and to help change the world for the better. And sometimes they're really small, really tiny detailed sort of solutions. Sometimes they're really big picture ideas. Um, but I think all of those things are are useful. And uh, I just want to applaud anyone in your audience who does see the danger and understands what's happening. Because as I say, that already makes you one of the uh, one of the very fortunate few who understand what the, the importance of the time that we're living in and thus able to grasp how incredible an opportunity this is that we have to be living in this time. Well, everybody who wants to know more about this, subscribe for James Corbett report. Thank you, James. It was really a pleasure. And I hope I see you soon for another topic because it seems to you that you are endless uh, information uh, database and uh, that will help lots of people in Croatia who are listening to us to be more aware and helping us to make decisions for the future. Thank you and have a nice day in Japan. I appreciate you having me on and I'm looking forward to talking to you again.